0: That this passage is a difficult passage to teach and to fully understand. Passages like these, you know, that keep me honest and keep me uh, in the book and keep me studying and thinking hard about uh, how to communicate. Texts like these that seem so countercultural. It seems so odd sometimes to read a passage like this in terms of how women are to be in a service or how men are to be in a corporate worship service. But the tricky passages, the difficult passages are sometimes why we come, you know, to try to get into the details and figure it out. Passages like these come to us because... I'm an expositor, and I believe in expository preaching, which means that you roll with whatever text comes next in the passage. If I skipped over this passage, you might say, man, he kind of wimped out there and didn't go uh, go where you need to go and talk about some hard things. But uh, this passage, uh, if I can frame it generally, is talking primarily about one thing. And that is this. This is the big idea. What is our attitude supposed to be like in corporate worship? Attitude. I mean, there's some prescriptions here. There's some directives. There's some things that we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to present ourselves. But beneath the surface is where Paul the Apostle is getting at things. He's instructing Timothy to lead the church at Ephesus, and if you skip over to 1 Timothy 3, 15, he's talking about, to Timothy, listen, if I don't show up, I want to equip you to do something. Verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So what Timothy's doing is he's basically saying, listen, Timothy, I need you to be my proxy. I want you to direct and lead the household of God. You need to gather the family together just like you gather a family for an important meeting in a living room and you need to give them some instructions on my behalf. It's family time. It's time to discuss how we are supposed to conduct ourselves. Not externally, but by and large internally. Let me ask this question. What was your attitude like On the way to church it's kind of a tough question isn't it you know I heard one pastor put it this way he said don't worry about the devil tempting you on the way to church because he's in my van with my kids on the way every Sunday I mean it can get tough to prepare your heart for worship especially corporate worship and it's not just what's going on in your own life but maybe what's happening in your own heart regarding the church The the idea here is to be circumspect, to be attitudinally in check before God and to humble yourself according to the scripture so that the Holy Spirit can bless the whole family of God and can use you to bless others in the family of God. So we're looking at some prescriptions that Paul gives the church through Timothy to men and women for corporate worship first of all let's take the men the men in corporate worship and let me just expressly say that these directives and these commands are talking very specifically regarding corporate worship where men and women are gathered together assembled as church That's what this is talking about. Now, in principle, you can make some applications to other venues, but I'm talking about the household of God, this time of corporate worship. And so we're going to talk more about the men in the weeks to come because we're going to open up 1 Timothy 3 and what it means to be a godly man and a godly spiritual leader. But we have one verse to start with regarding the men this morning. That's verse 8. Look at verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. All right, let's begin with the men. The posture that is uh, spoken of here is like this. It's holy hands lifted high. There's a lot of postures in prayer that the Bible talks about. You... Jesus turned his eyes heavenward. Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane bowed low and sweat great drops of blood. You have men falling before God, their maker, when they would encounter a vision of God. They would fall as dead men. You have all kinds of postures of prayer. You even have Peter who was out on the wind and the waves crying back to Jesus as he began to sink. What a prayer there. Jesus, save me. (laughs) <laughs> That's his prayer. Uh, you have conversational prayer. You have formal prayer. You have public prayer. You have private prayer. But specifically here, in terms of posture, Paul's point to Timothy is not that you're supposed to always pray like this, but that attitudinally you're to pray with your hands open. There's, no, there's nothing happening under the table when you're leading in corporate prayer. And Paul is directing the men to pray this way. Now, he's not specifically saying elders or pastors here. This is a broad category of men that men should be inclined or willing to stand up and pray. Look, look at the verse here. Look what it says. It says, Men, I, I love this, should pray. There, there's some urgency here that look, it's like Paul saying, Timothy, get those men at the church praying. Kind of like why we just had a couple of testimonies. Get the men up front. Get them talking. Get them exposing their hearts. They should pray. They should do this. And this is... Early talk in terms of what the church should be like. Chapter 2, remember, that was where Paul talked about prayer in a multifaceted way. You see these words, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, made for all people. The church should be praying for the government, for all kinds of people, for officials, for the common people, for your neighborhoods. We should be praying for the conversion of souls. We should be praying. And specifically, Paul is saying... The men should lead out in this. The men should stand up in full transparency and openness and pray. There's a caution here, verse 8. You need to do it with holy hands, unstained hands. So you are someone who is leading in corporate prayer. You're praying out of a holy life and you're leading prayers out of a holy motivation. Your hands aren't stained. There's no agenda when you pray. That's what Paul is saying saying men you're not supposed to pray with some kind of agenda he's saying men you should never pray at people you pray for people you're not supposed to leverage a spiritual moment over someone in a manipulative way that's what Paul is saying you shouldn't manipulate with spirituality You have to be honest. You have to be open. You have to reconcile things before you get up and spiritually lead. As best as possible in spiritual leadership, it's always incumbent upon the leader to make things right before you get up and lead people spiritually. That's where the freedom comes. You're not supposed to do it with, verse 8, anger. That's literally wrath in your heart. Or quarreling, And I think Paul is hitting on the temptation of men sometimes who are inclined to be fighters, who are inclined to, to win something, to achieve something, goal-orientedness. He's saying, listen, that's not the disposition and the heart attitude that you should come with when you pray. You should pray with an open heart and hands above the table. One example of this, maybe the greatest example of someone praying here on earth on behalf of other people, is the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross with his hands open wide. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that prayer was answered because later on, 3,000 Jews would be saved at Pentecost. Forgiveness came because of Jesus' open-heartedness. The ultimate purity of prayer was manifest in what Christ did. This is the example of spiritual leadership that should happen and be happening within the church. Men, it's, it's hard, isn't it, sometimes to speak publicly. And yet we have to sometimes, and this is not just for the gifted teacher or for the elder or the pastor. This is for men. Sometimes we have to put ourselves out there in front of people and pray openly personally at times it's very hard to pray publicly because you got a lot going on you got a lot that you got to wrestle through and and work on to get to a place where you're praying in an unstained way but it's worth the work listen men. listen you should want to lead out spiritually in your home at your little church and at the corporate level Corporate church, body level worship, whether in a home group or, or a, an upfront group here. And this, by the way, is not saying that women should not pray out loud in community group settings or other settings in the church. And, uh, you know, I think of the 120 women that were, uh, men and women that were assembled in the upper room. They were praying together out loud. It's just that there's an accent mark here on the men that they should move forward in spiritual leadership and be inclined to do that. Okay. Enough on the men. We'll pick the men up next week. Um, but now we're going to move over to women in corporate worship. This is verses 9 through 15. Is everybody buckled up? Buckle your seatbelt. But I got their tomatoes ready. Anyway, no, here we go. All right. But, I mean, this is, because our culture influences how we think, this is an interesting one to dive into because it's pretty countercultural. Verse 9, likewise, means we're talking still in terms of the corporate worship setting. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with all or with good works the women the women are addressed in terms of a particular word that kind of opens up the idea here paul is talking about a woman's attitude as she comes to worship corporately this is attitudinal at the core Paul is talking in terms of the attitude of a woman's heart coming for worship. Now she's talking exter- Paul is talking externally in terms of dress, but he's primarily talking in terms of the heart. And I pick this up with a word that's repeated in verse 9. The word respectable in the English Standard Version is the same word that's used as a verb for adorn. You see that in verse 9? Adorn themselves in respectable apparel. The word adorn here is cosmion, where we get the word cosmos, and you think of the interplanetary system, our solar system of order as it rotates around the sun. Um, The idea is that as the cosmos are ordered, a woman in her heart is supposed to order it in such a way that she is exuding modesty and a, a respect for God and his word as she comes to worship God. It's a humility of heart. It's a deliberate attitude to say, as I come into the body of Christ, I'm coming to worship my heavenly father. I'm softening my heart and I'm humbling myself before the Lord. And as I do that, that humbling will manifest itself in how I portray myself to others, both in terms of dress and in terms, as verse 10 points out, godliness with good works. First and foremost, Paul is talking about modesty on the inside, internally turn over to 1st Peter chapter 3 I can't dismiss us to we have to go to 1st Peter 3 we can't dismiss this passage because 1st Peter 3 is talking so specifically in parallel to what Paul is saying to Timothy in verse 1 he's talking about winning your unsaved husband through your godly conduct so they can be won without a word and in verse 2 he says when they see your respectful and pure conduct Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Here it is, here's the key, verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Look at verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. All right, let me ask this question. Do you think either one of these passages, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 3, is condemning the idea that women should look beautiful? No, we're, we, we are thankful for women to value beauty and for dressing themselves to look beautiful this is part of what God says is the glory of a woman In Song of Solomon, chapter 1, it talks about jewelry being on the bride and how there are multiple necklaces and jewelry and gold and silver that are worn. You have the Queen of Sheba who arrayed herself in great beauty, and that's lauded in Scripture. You have women who were beautiful. You have Esther who won the beauty pageant in the story of Esther. Okay, She was the one who was chosen by the leader of the, the known world in that area at the time because she was beautiful. Beauty is not condemned. It's just the idea that you don't want to come to corporate worship and flaunt beauty in a way that distracts other people from worshiping God. That's the point. Uh, Back then, uh, the specifics of chapter 2, back then people would braid and weave their hair in such a way that they would literally weave gold and jewelry in and through the hair to make a glittery effect that would be distracting to others as they were worshiping. And that's a cultural angle, but the principle of being modest is transcultural and principled in terms of the doctrine here, the doctrine of corporate worship. You don't want to be a distraction. Men are triggered by sight, by seeing. David on the rooftop was triggered by sight. And we don't want to do that, right? Women, you don't want to do that to the men. You want to be part of the corporate community as we're worshiping God. Not distracting other people in worship. When you think of women in scripture... Sarah who was mentioned I mean she was so beautiful that she was willing to go with a lie that she was Abraham's half-sister so she wouldn't be taken into the harem right I mean that is that is serious Sarah was beautiful even in her older age she was beautiful but what do we remember about Sarah we remember that she was a woman filled with faith as she awaited her promised son Isaac You have others, you have Esther who I mentioned, you have Ruth who was very beautiful, the Moabitess who went with God's people, who was married by Boaz or to Boaz. You have Lydia, we don't know anything about her but that she was a saleswoman, you have the Proverbs 31 woman. Where, again, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. It doesn't mean she wasn't beautiful. It just means that that isn't the core of who she is. What matters is the inner person of the heart. That's what's primary before God and within the church. Women are honored for their heart and their life. Think of Yodia and Sentechi, even in Philippians that we talked about earlier. Earlier, a few weeks ago, they were fellow workers in gospel work. Priscilla, who, with her husband Aquila, was counseling strongly to Apollos to learn the end of the story regarding Christ. And literally, Priscilla was used to correct a great preacher in the times of the early church. The gospel has given women equality in terms of their spirituality, I want to just point this out because we're talking about such a sensitive passage. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3, 28. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Women in the early church were not, Elevated or exalted culturally. They were demeaned and oftentimes put in the background. And yet Christ Jesus was was very intimately connected to women. Women who were at his crucifixion. Women who were at his resurrection. The women were the first to herald the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus honored women. Guess what? Jesus made women. Do you understand this? I mean, of course he honored his creation. Women are made in the image of God. Women are beautifully made by God. They're not to be demeaned. You women are not to be put down. You're not to be underestimated in terms of your spirituality and your very, very necessary input and vital ministry within the corporate body. But there is a warning here look men are different than women by design and men are triggered by sight so women let's sublimate any sort of opulence or or flashiness on Sunday morning and that comes from the heart I'm not gonna in any way make some list in our minds um, either concrete or theoretical in terms of what's appropriate or not appropriate in terms of dress on Sunday morning because at the core, it's the attitude of the heart. You just want to be respectable for God. You want to be modest. You want to be humble. And guess what's going to happen? If that's your heart attitude, you're going to make the right choices in terms of what you wear. It's going to be different in different cultures, different places. I don't guess we have to worry about this too much when it's uh, 10 below. But, you know, because you're just trying to be warm. But, but in terms of this text, it's, it's the attitude Of the heart. It's adorned with modesty internally and then adorned with modesty externally. Preparing for corporate worship and then participating in corporate worship. Move to verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I got to tell you, let's stop there. In the original language, it is that strong and that dogmatic. let me just give a release valve. All of you, if I was sitting where you're sitting, all of you should come with this heart attitude in mind. We should all be submitting ourselves to God's word. It's not a submission to me. I just want to be an instrument. I want to be like a straw that the word of God is passing through. I want the clarity of God's word to be shining brightly in your hearts as we open it up together. It's not about being submissive to me; it's being submissive to the authority of the word of God. That's why we have um, a piece of furniture like this. Um, it's it's to symbolize as a desk a place to hold god's word because in our hearts we're reverencing the truth because we want god to speak to us through the word that he's given to us so first of all there's participating in corporate worship that is learning with humility let me say this the women were directed to learn why just so they could learn and then forget about what they learned were you supposed to just kind of check your mind at the door and say, oh, I'm learning, I'm, I'm attitudinally correct, and then I come and go? No. Guess why you're supposed to learn? You're supposed to learn so that you can teach other people what you learned. The Great Commission, where Jesus said, Look, go out into all the world, that's not just the men that are supposed to do that. The women are supposed to teach all that Christ commanded, you're supposed to be a teacher. Now, some of you women will have the gift of teaching and you'll, you'll feel compelled, I must teach. And the gift lists are not gender specified. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, other places. The gift of teaching goes to men and women. And some of you have that gift. But listen, all of you women are supposed to be thinking in terms of learning so that you can communicate truth. Now, you say, well, where can I communicate it? Well, just according to this passage, not up front in the pulpit, as like an elder or a pastor or a preacher, but you're to communicate in a variety of other venues. Here's one venue where I've seen women powerfully used in the body of Christ. Very similarly to how Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife team, communicated God's word powerfully to Apollos in a corrective, admonition-oriented way. That's in counseling. There's all kinds of private counseling or small group counseling where you can give your heart and give the Word of God and where you must know the truth and you must know doctrine to be able to do that. I've been in counseling sessions where I've co-counseled with Judy, my wife, and she is such a good, clear counselor that I've, I just sort of set back and let her roll. I'm not just bragging on my wife, but I'm bragging on my wife. I mean, it's just, I'm bragging on what you women can do if you are learning to teach. You you take in so you can give out. Look over at Titus 2. Titus 2. Look at this. Verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Very similar instruction. 1 Timothy 2, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. There it is. Older women. This isn't specific to a a gifting. This is just women in general. You should expect that you're going to teach something. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Let me just say something to you women from this text. I think sometimes, you know, women, you might read a text like this and say, okay, it's really kind of narrow and limited even in terms of the content of what I'm about to teach or whatever, no, you've got to know sound doctrine you've got to know the gospel you got to know the whole counsel of God's word to be able to do this let me tell you why marriages are constantly breaking apart I mean many of you have suffered through that tragedy that catastrophe in your life no matter if it was you know you're completely in the right and your spouse was completely in the wrong or however it was it hurt deeply it hurts kids it hurts families it's hard okay it's what some of you have gone through and whether you've gone through it or not older women are put in place in the body of Christ to save marriages that's what this says to save marriages that's what you get to do now You can teach in Bible studies, you can communicate truths, you can learn in, um, you know, women teaching, women doctrine in scripture. I understand all of that, but I love the specificity here. You know, how hard is it to raise a child? Very hard. Child rearing is tough, and I'm part of the process, but guess what? My wife does most of the work. She does, and she's not here this morning, so you don't have to look over, but it, she she does. She does the lion's share of the work. She She reaches my children's hearts, and it's hard work, and it's exhausting, and it's depleting, and we need each other. The women need the women to be able to say, don't give up. Don't quit on your child. Keep going. Don't give up on your husband. I know he's how he is, but... Stick it out. Where does that kind of power come from? It comes from learning the scripture and being strong enough to be able to reach into the life of another person with the Bible. You say, well, yeah, but I've gone through a divorce. I've gone through a difficult time. That's all the more reason to comfort others who, have either, who are either going through a divorce or on the precipice of it, where you just give your life and you give your heart You say, but I'm not qualified. Yeah, but your qualification is the word of the living God. Okay? This is not talking about a role or office here. This is talking about women. If you're a woman, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the word of God, you need to be getting about the business of teaching. And we men are very thankful when a a woman speaks into the life of our Wife or spouse and says something that we can't say to her and it helps the marriage, right? I mean, this is an incredible Ministry of the word of god so Where was I verse 11? Let a woman learn quietly quietly. That word is kind of a Unfortunate translation the word quietly here. It means peaceful It's not specifically saying that you can't talk in church like if I say something and you go hey you know what do you think about this or that's not sin to do that I'm not bothered by that that's not a problem you're we're, we're supposed to sing out loudly we're supposed to give testimonies um special music uh, you know announcements men and women are supposed to talk in church it's fine to do that what Paul is shutting down here is the idea that a woman is standing up and creating a problem as an outburst or or wanting uh, an inappropriate venue of authority from the pulpit that's what he's saying he's saying just keep things peaceful in the church and come with an attitude of submissiveness to learn Uh, the same word for peaceful is used in verse 2 where we're to pray for our leaders that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Same language here. It's not talking about some sort of gag order on women in the church. But there is an emphasis here, and I can't let this go. Verse 11, with all submissiveness. You know, men and women, we should come trusting God by faith that he's going to speak through broken vessels who stand up and preach because it's the word. And Hebrews thirteen seventeen to obey leaders with all submissiveness so that the leadership can lead with joy. That kind of heart attitude is for men and women, but specifically Paul is talking to the women. It's, there's a possibility here that there was some sort of false teaching going on that was promoting this sort of libertine spirit within the church at this time. It's the idea that there was false teaching going on, and you can look over in 1st Timothy 4.1. There was false teaching going on where Paul literally called it the doctrines of demons, which, by the way, the false teachers here are men, so they're the ones who are screwing things up, okay? But I think some women were being led astray, were being led astray, and they were falling into... Some false teaching aestheticism or look at verse 3 forbidding marriage it's the idea that women were being taught not to seek to be married they were being taught to be spiritual and 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 being baited to think that the only significant role in corporate worship is the upfront speaking role it's very possible look at chapter 5 chapter 5 verse 14 again The devil is mentioned in the false teaching that was going on. Verse 12 of chapter 5, there was a condemnation there where verse 13, besides that he says, they learned to be idlers. These are women who were single, who were widows, but they were younger than 60. And so they had time on their hands. And it says that they were gossips and busybodies, They need to be encouraged not to be that. In verse 14, he says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Look at verse 15. For some have already strayed after Satan. There were some women who were being targeted to say, Listen. I'm not going to think about marriage. I'm not going to think about raising kids. I'm not going to think about sort of normal life as a woman. I'm going to think about what powerful position I should have. And Paul is confronting this. All right. So, again, participating in corporate worship, learning with humility, listening, not teaching. And what I mean is teaching in the public assembly. And then following, not leading. Listen, the reason I put that in here is that when men stand up and lead from the word of God, it's a very, very humbling thing to do. It's a very weighty position to be in. James 3 says, let not many of you become teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment first timothy 4 verse 6 is where paul told timothy command and teach these things this is a position of command authority where you are humble before the lord god look at 2nd timothy 4 verse 12 this is the significance of what's going on here verse 2 preach the word be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and teaching. And women, I think it's important to understand that the pulpit ministry is for preachers, it's for elders, it's for leadership. Not every man is to preach the word of God. And for women, they are not to preach The word of God. Now, how can I say this? Well, I say this because it's rooted in the nature and design of how men and women were created. It's rooted in the creative order. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul was bringing up a very similar discussion within Corinth as they were mishandling and misusing the gifts in the early church. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, look at this, verse 2. Now I command you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. God. What Paul does here when he's talking about men and women and their roles in the corporate assembly is he says, listen, submission is not something that is a product of sin. Submission is foundationally found in the Godhead itself. Guess what? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, co-essential together. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all essentially God. And yet, manifest within the Trinity from before time began for all of eternity, you have the Son submitting to the Father and the Holy Spirit promoting Christ in a submissive way. You have submission and subordination within the very Godhead itself. Submission is everywhere. It's not just gender specified by the way. I submit and we submit to governing authorities. I submit to the eldership here at the church. Um, We submit um, to one another in humility and love. There's a mutual submission within the body of Christ. We submit to our employers, right? I mean there is submission and subordination in military. This is not just something to target the women because of gender, but because we're talking in terms of gender paul decides to root this submission in the creative order itself turn back to 1st timothy told you this was a hard passage here we go verse 12 i do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet, again, to remain peaceable. And what Paul is doing here is he's, he's paralleling the teaching of the word of God with exercising authority. In other words, if you're teaching the doctrine of scripture, that is an authoritative church leadership role that women are not permitted to do. This is for the men. It's put as a package here. Why? Why? Why is this not a cultural issue? Why is this not an effect of sin that it had to be this way? It's because it goes back to the very beginning of the first man and the first woman, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. As one person put it, um, there was no confusion in the garden for who was to run the garden when Adam was formed and then Eve was formed to help him do that leadership. Leadership and handling and oversight of the garden. There was no confusion there. Adam was formed first and he was formed to be the leader. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean women are chopped liver or, or not not... You know, able to handle responsibilities. Well, again, this is talking in terms of the church. There are women who are responsible for all kinds of things in the business world and even the governing world and other um, scenarios. And I'm not talking about those positions. I'm just talking in terms of the application of creation to corporate worship within the church. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. Adam was formed first, then Eve. There was a creative order there's something beautiful in this. And I got to appeal to Matthew Henry, the great Puritan preacher, what he said about this. He said, and listen, the woman was not made out of man's head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him and near his heart to be loved. Listen, just because the man is to lead out in the dance, doesn't mean there isn't something very beautiful as the man and woman dance together. That's the idea. There's a beauty in creative design and it begins with the creative order. We move on here. Verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now to open this verse up, we need to go back to Genesis 3. Turn to Genesis 3. Now, what we have is a scene in the garden, and you know the story well. You have the serpent who enters into the Garden of Eden and was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And Satan begins to talk to Eve. Now, I want to be very clear and upfront with something. If you skip down to verse 6, you'll see at the end of the verse when Eve falls to temptation and gives the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to her husband. It says, she also gave some to her husband. Let's say it together. Who was with her? Where was Adam? He was with her. He was standing right there. This is the point that Paul is making here. It's not, when when Paul talks about a woman being deceived and being quite deceived, the language is very clear here, that she was totally duped. By Satan. It's not to set a woman up as the example of female, female gullible. Gullibility? Gullibleness? Help me. Come on, English majors. Okay, anyway. A woman is not the premier example of being gullible. It's that when Adam did not lead and was passively standing by, Eve was in a position of leadership which made them utterly vulnerable to being deceived. It's vulnerability. We're not talking about a female's aptitude to think or to understand things or to discern. Otherwise, women would not be allowed to teach doctrine. And Titus 2 is very clear that women are to teach doctrine. Women are to learn so that they can teach the men in First and 2 Timothy are the ones who are deceiving the flock as false teachers. So we're not picking on the women in terms of aptitude or the ability to discern truth. Women are co-equal heirs and they are made spiritually to be able to discern. However, when the woman was not functioning within her divinely designed world, role in this scenario she left and came out from under the protection and the husband Adam abdicated his role to protect and suddenly there became extreme vulnerability where the woman became deceived now any man or any woman can be deceived by Satan and by the world by his or her flesh. But there is something explicitly stated here in paralleling what Paul is telling Timothy and what we read in Genesis 3 to see that a woman was more vulnerable and that the fall took place because she was out from under the headship of her husband in that situation. Satan basically tempted Eve to doubt God. Verse one, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden. And God, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you sh- will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Guess what? The woman is talking with the devil and she is baited to believe that she's being ripped off by God. And then she becomes enticed, as the next verse shows, by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Satan used the same temptation tactics against a man who is Jesus Christ, right? Hey, you know, turn these stones to bread. Throw yourself, you know, or, or you can have all the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. You know, you can be God. And Jesus is saying, be gone, Satan. I worship the true God. And Jesus himself was very God. And so it was ridiculous for him to even think that he would fall. But Eve did fall. And there was a vulnerability there because the man became passive and abdicated his role and responsibility to lead. And the woman took the reins in that spiritual moment in a position she should not have had, and she fell. You know, another situation where a man fell in the same way is David. We don't have time, but if we were to look at First Samuel chapter 11, it says that David, who was the king at this point in the story, the Old Testament account, when all the men were going off to war, he didn't go as kings often go. And it's explicit about that in First Samuel 11, verse 1. He as a king was supposed to go off to war, but instead he abdicated his leadership responsibilities, was on the roof, spying on Bathsheba, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, he fell. He was not functioning in appropriate submission to his office and to his role. It's the same kind of situation here. How do we know that the woman was quite deceived? Well, when God came into the garden and confronted man and the woman, look at verse 13 of chapter three. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She knew that she had been deceived. She had been completely deceived. That's what Paul is pointing out here. You weren't functioning in your proper role and you made things vulnerable and you became completely deceived. Verse 12, what did the man what happened with the man was he deceived it says the man said the woman you gave to be with me she gave me the fruit of the tree and i ate now there was some sort of self-deception going on in adam's heart but paul's point in 1st timothy 2 is that the man sinned willingly it's like Eve is, Eve is kind of rationalizing things away. Yeah, I can be like God and God's duped me and he's withholding from me. And so I'm gonna buy the lie and I'm gonna eat. The man is going, this is trouble, but I, you know, I have no will to put any stop to this. And this is my wife and I'm just gonna passively sin and follow her now and, and eat. And then the whole of humanity is plunged into sin. Romans 5 doesn't lay the blame at Eve's feet, but Adam's feet. 1 Corinthians 15, same thing. It's because of one man, Adam, that mankind was plunged into sin. You are born a sinner because of the man's passivity. And so we dare not have that in the church. If there's one place where men need to lead out and stand up and transparently pray and give their hearts and do the appropriate soul searching that it takes to lead it's in the local church If there's one place that women need to feed alongside of their husbands feeding in the word of god it's in the church let me say a word to uh those of you who are divorced or those of you who are single. Listen, there are all kinds of different freedoms and scenarios that come to you when you are unencumbered by a family or by a spouse. But the temptations are the same in terms of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And the humility needs to be the same in all cases. You know who's single in the passage of 1 Timothy? Paul is. Paul's a single man giving these prescriptions in terms of primarily men who are married and women who are married. And that leads us to our final verse that we're going to open up in 1 Timothy. Up, oh, we've, we've run out of time. We can't, we can't look through verse 15. No, just kidding. We got to. I'm not coming back to this. Right, here we go. Um, so verse 14, Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Verse 15 yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now look, this is a very debated verse. It's uh, you know used in many different ways and um, interpreted and applied many different ways. Um, one of which is to say that this is talking about Eve and how Eve brings salvation through childbearing. In other words, Genesis three fifteen is the proto euangelion it's the the first gospel message in the Bible and it's the idea that she is going to provide children that will eventuate in the coming of the Messiah and it's true there's something very special to the fact that Jesus when he came he had a physical earthly mom but he didn't have a physical earthly dad he had Joseph as his dad but He literally was in the womb of Mary. So there's something powerful there in terms of the promise that Jesus was going to come through a woman. Galatians 4 talks about that as well. However, I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think it's actually more simple than that rather than complex. People get tripped up on the word saved. What does that mean? In other words, could it be that Paul is trumping up some works here to say... For you women who are married and having babies, you're a shoe in into heaven. If you have babies, then you get saved and you get to go to heaven. Is that what Paul's doing? Some people say, no, he's not talking about that. So it can't mean anything about um, really women bearing children. But that's, that's not what Paul's saying either. Paul is saying simply this, in general, for women who are married, you have a great opportunity to work out your salvation with fear and trembling as you have babies. I mean, another interpretation is you'll be saved through childbirth. A lot of people, women die in childbirth or did in the ancient world and even today. And so but that, that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual sanctification, The word sozo here for salvation is talking about salvation in terms of, look, you're saved in the past, you're being saved through the present, and then ultimately in the future, you're going to cross a line and finish line and go into glory. Final salvation. And what Paul is saying here, he's talking in terms of perseverance. You see that word, verse 15, if they continue? He's saying, look, if you continue in faith and love, if you're progressing in your fighting of the good fight of faith then as you raise children as you have children as you raise children as you as you nurse children as you wake up in the middle of the night and I tell you even though I wasn't the mom with twins waking up in the middle of the night you know with babies and being on duty there is something very spiritually hard about that in terms of your attitude in terms of your sacrifice in terms of raising children it's very very hard and I'm just the dude I mean Judy's the one who gets the, the gold medal, right? Now, you women who have raised children, it's very difficult. And what Paul is saying is look, a a premier role that many women in the church have as an opportunity is to grow spiritually and to persevere in the faith as you have children. You say, where am I getting this from? Well, turn over to first first Timothy four sixteen. This is talking about the role of a shepherd. Paul says, Timothy, look, keep close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this. It's this another perseverance. Keep going in the Christian life. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will, same word, save both yourself and your hearers. Is Paul talking about work salvation? No. He's saying as you progress in your salvation, as you keep going, as you keep running the marathon as a pastor, as you do that, that is going to help your flock to keep growing and keep persevering and keep going all the way until glory. You lead by example. If you live the Christian life, it will be an example to help other people live the Christian life. And then if you t- look down again at 1 Timothy 5, we looked at this passage already, but again, Paul is exhorting women to follow after their natural desires. Look at verse 14. He so I would have younger widows, basically younger single women, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. It's the same command. Paul's saying, look, you're, you'll grow in your salvation through this experience of childbearing. It's difficult. It's difficult. I used to watch that show, 24, with Jack Bauer during the time when I was, um, you know, forgive me for that, it's all right. Anyway, but I was watching that, you know, when we had twins, and I used to think, you know, because I would be up all night, it was like a salami shop, wrapping one baby up, giving it to Judy, and then wrap the other one up, you know, and what, you know, I was out of my head. And I used to think, I want to trade my life that I'm living now with Jack, I want to be Jack Bauer. At least, you know, he gets to have a shower. I don't know. I mean, it's like, wow, it's hard, you know? The burden of, of child rearing is tough, but it becomes very, becomes very redemptive for women. Look at this, verse 15, if they continue in faith and love. If it's, if it's done from an attitude of the heart where you're raising children in terms of your love for the Lord in holiness and self-control. So that's that's my take on what that very complicated interpretation is. You know, again, where I started was, this is a passage that talks about what we do and prescriptions and corporate worship. But really, this is a passage, passage that speaks to our attitude as we gather together. We are called to be humble as we gather as the family of God, whether you're a man, a woman, single, married, old, young. We're called to be the body of Christ, And to to attitudinally come under the teaching of Scripture. May we all do that, being transformed from the inside out by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. Thank you that we can gather.